Welcome to the North Star Unplugged podcast, brought to you from Bozeman, Montana. Your host is Kristen Rainey, the founder and CEO of North Star Sleep School, providing online and in-person sleep courses to help you get better rest. The North Star Unplugged podcast is about rest and rejuvenation, and it's also about unplugging from technology, transitions, and transformations, and spending time and energy on the things that really matter, which are different for all of us. You can find the audio version of the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. If you want to watch the interviews, go to YouTube and search for the North Star Unplugged channel. Finally, you can also see all prior episodes on the North Star Sleep School website at www.northstarsleepschool.com. Hello, and welcome to another episode of North Star Unplugged. I'm your host, Kristen Rainey, and I'm here today with Newton Chang, who oversees Google's global fitness and massage recovery programs. Outside the office, Newton is a competitive powerlifter who has set five U.S. and 18 California state records and is a world bronze medalist and two-time U.S. national champion. Newton, welcome to the show, and thanks for being here. Kristen, it's so good to see you. Uh, I'm super happy to be here. Newton, tell us where are you based and how long have you been at Google? So I'm based in our Sunnyvale, California office, which is also where I live with my wife and my three-year-old daughter. And I have been at Google for just over 12 years now. And can you share more about your role there? Yeah. So my job at Google, um, my title is Director of Global Health and Performance Programs. And that has two major parts. One is to oversee all of our amenities and services with regards to fitness or any programs to help our employees get more physical movement in their days. And then uh, recovery. And so that's how do we take intentional breaks so that we can recover from stress. And our flagship program there is our on-site massage program, uh, which is on hold during the pandemic. But we're also doing a lot of things digitally as well as uh, working closely with our meditation programs. The other half of my job is to convene the different groups that are working on improving the health and well-being of Google employees across the company. So these might be groups that focus on uh, mindfulness that are housed within our people development or learning and development organization. They might be other well-being groups housed in our benefits organization. Uh, I myself, I'm in our real estate and workplace services organization. So as culturally as Google works, where we... Um, Uh, we're a pretty decentralized model. A lot of the work is just making sure you bring together all the experts and voices to to try to have one conversation. Prior to the pandemic, uh, what did the health and performance program offer Google employees on a day-to-day basis? Yeah, so before the pandemic, uh, we had about 80 fitness centers dispersed around the world in over 300 massage rooms. Uh, in addition to fitness centers, which you can think of as, as gyms, uh, each of those had things like uh, group exercise studios, dance studios, they had sports fields, and all the services that you'd have um, to make those spaces really come to life, such as personal training, coaching, um, other small group cohort classes. And then on the massage side, we'd have, uh, we had one-on-one massage services in almost every office around the world. In addition to that, we ran a lot of classes to help Googlers figure out how do I take care of my own body. 
Um, so there's really a number of different ways that Googlers could engage with us just for physical movement or, again, taking intentional breaks to recover from stress. And what's an example of, of one or two of those classes, those group classes? Uh, yeah, so on the fitness side, um, we work with a vendor named Exos, who their background and their heritage is really around training uh, elite athletes and um, special forces military. And what they found and what we believe is that the same things that keep an athlete on the field and the same things that keep a special forces uh, operator healthy, they're the same things that keep a corporate athlete or uh, someone in a corporation healthy who has to sit at a desk all day doing really taxing cognitive work. And so we have a lot of classes um, that look at how do you build total body strength um, so that you're not just working out your bench press or your squat but really thinking about how do you make the entire machine work optimally. Um, so that's one example, and we, we run those throughout the world. And then on the recovery side, we, recovery side, we have a class called Align, where our massage therapists, we, we sought to scale what they do beyond one-on-one massage. So they developed a class to help people understand how does your body work? Um, how would you do um, various self-care activities to take care of not just your muscles, but your, your tendons, your overall musculoskeletal system. So that again, like if you're going to be sitting at a desk all day, which is really taxing on the body, how are you taking care of your body? And what is the tie to your mind, which is really doing all the work at a place like Google? What are um, major health and performance themes that you've observed at Google over your long tenure there? So within health and performance, because our major programs are around fitness and massage. That was kind of our starting point. And I think um, we really started looking through a lens of physical health, of things like that help your body move more and then help you recover. What we're finding um, in the recent years is we need to focus much more on mental health as well as social health, which um, we're, we, we don't have a way to measure that directly. But what we see from both internal and external research is your interpersonal relationships with your friends, your family, your local community are so important to mental health. And both of those are so intertwined with physical health. So, for example, on the mental health side, we're working with our benefits department to roll out um, some really awesome resilience trainings uh, where we have an expert who's working with um, external experts from the sports psychology world, or even, again, the special forces military world. Um, and then the, the social health side, what we're trying to do is we're working with uh, a few experts, um, such as an author named Charles Vogel, who's, whose book I brought up uh, in some of our emails, who's really taught us how do you build really rich communities so that people are actually feeling part of something and building rich relationships versus just kind of joining a group. And Charles was actually on the podcast for any listeners who want to check him out. Um, he was on a, f- a few weeks ago. Um, so, Newton, how has the program evolved over the years um, to meet Google employees' needs? Early on, uh, again, kind of like our point of view has evolved. Um, so much of the focus was on, hey, Google's getting bigger. Where else do we need to add a gym? Where do we need to add more massage service? Because those were the flagship services. The employees love them. Um, and we knew they were effective. 
Um, as we've grown, I think we are looking to do things such as um, my department is partnering much more closely with our internal mindfulness community, which is called GPAWS. So our people development department, you know, they we all recognize there's many aspects to health and well-being. And so they had put in the legwork to grow a, a community of 400 um, meditation and mindfulness practitioners who are all Google employees distributed throughout the world who has a side volunteer job, uh, host meditation sits in their local office and bring together a local meditation community. Um, so that's one example where we seek to move, again, from beyond the world of fitness and massage and think of uh, health and well-being much more holistically. Um, another example is we, in, in partnership with experts like Charles, we saw that the value that a lot of our fitness programs were, were bringing, like, yes, we were helping you move more, but the underlying value was actually we were bringing together like-minded people to build relationships. So we started looking internally to see, like, you could run the same class at different offices throughout the country, throughout the world. One might have five people in it. One might have 20 or 30 people in it. And so we started looking at, like, hey, why does one have, you know, 5x, 6x the number of people? And what we found was that the coach leading the larger class, uh, or maybe it was a massage, uh, massage practitioner or a meditation leader, they were doing all the little things needed to not just bring people together, but to start to knit them together in community and to help people step up to lead that social group in that community and really turn it into like a place where people could have rich, meaningful uh, relationships. So moving forward, what we're saying is like, yes, we, we hope to help you move more, but it's all got to be built on a foundation of you connecting with either with activities love or people who you can build a meaningful relationship with. And how about the, uh, the infamous nap pods? Can you share more about those and whether those are well utilized? Yeah. So um, a little bit of this will be what we see internally. And then a little of this will be my opinion based on someone who also seeks to optimize his own sleep. So what we've seen is the nap pods, um, they're really great. Like if, if you lie on them, they're, they fit you really well. They're really comfortable and they do block out distractions. However, if you see them and you're, you're kind of just lying there with your face covered and your legs sticking out. And so now the issue is like, if you put that in the middle of an office, like, do you feel okay doing that? For some people, they say, you know what, you put a nap pod here, therefore, I feel totally okay with napping. Others, they still feel exposed. And so based on that, we've taken the feedback, and sometimes you end up putting the nap pod in a separate room. Now, the question is, if you've created a separate room for napping, why do you need the pod? So um, there's, there's a little bit of a, a bigger question of like, what is a good in-office sleeping experience? between both the space and the service. And so we're still trying to figure that out. We still believe in the nap pods. We're also experimenting with uh, nap or what we're just calling them uh, regen spaces where you can step away and regenerate. And we don't know what uh, the right set of solutions is so that a broad number of people feel like they can take those breaks. The other thing I'll point out is that um, if you look at you know things like the Anders Ericsson study, uh, which looked at the correlation between high performers and taking naps. Um, I think that all of that is true. 
However, in, in practice, what we see is some people are not optimizing their nighttime sleep and then using the daytime nap as a band-aid to, to just help get through the day. And so you're not really getting the upside to performance because it's really the nighttime sleep that's more important. And that's where I think a little of that is, is my opinion as someone who seeks to optimize his own sleep. Great. Well, I, and, I, and I have some questions about that um, that I want to return to. But first, um, you know, with Googlers working uh, from home now for such an extended period, um, Newton, how has your team had to pivot in how you work and what you focus on? Yeah. It, so I am so proud of what my team has done. We've, in the course of months, we pivoted from, again, running over 80 on-site fitness centers um, and offering, um, I believe, just over 2,000 weekly uh, in-person classes. Uh, all of that had to close down with the pandemic because we, we closed down all of our offices. And now we are offering uh, just over 1,500 weekly digital classes. And what we found is there's, there's, I'll break it down roughly into three segments, and this is an oversimplification, but uh, we found is for some people, like this is, they are good with the trade-off. We're like, I liked working out in person. The digital also serves me. Like I, I'm going to continue and this will work for me. For some people we saw digital was just not a substitute for their in-person experience. Um, whether it be like they liked the space, they liked the equipment, or they liked the face-to-face -face interaction with either um, the practitioner, like the coach, or the other people participating. And so some of those people have had to go off and find other activities in order to stay active. So the last segment of people and participants in our programs that we saw that I think is the most exciting is people who didn't want to participate in our on-site offerings. So some people might have said, you know what, I, I don't want to walk into a room and have to try out a Zumba class or a yoga class for the first time where everyone can see me. And what we found was they felt really safe to try it out in their living room. Uh, what's even better was for some of them, their partner, their husband, their wife, they also felt safe to jump in. And for some, like they've said, oh, yeah, I, I, I noticed my 14-year-old, he was starting to take an interest. And, you know, for the first few times, he was just watching. And then lately, he's been trying out some of the movements. Um, same thing with, you know, other people who might live in the house, such as grandparents. Uh, and I find that really, really exciting because that's where we really start to multiply the, the benefit and the effect we can have. Newton, what challenges do you see now with such blurry work and personal boundaries for so many in the workforce who are now working from home? I think the big one that I hear about is that there is no bookend and there's no separation from work and life. And before, I think some people were very intentional about how they set that up. Others were not, and they thought, oh, I, I'm, I'm pretty much just integrating my work and life. But what I don't think we were appreciating was the power of having to step away from a physical place and then the power of having these buffer periods, such as your commute to and from the office. So, for example, if my programs seek to help someone take intentional recovery where they, they both shift what they're doing, but also how they're thinking, and they stop thinking about work and they think about something else, getting into a car and having to drive somewhere is a really good way to do that. And we had always treated that like a tax, like, oh, this is inefficient. No one likes commuting in traffic. Um, but we didn't value the, 
the benefit that was providing, which was like, I am now forced to shift mindsets and activities. And so you, you see like all those little blockers are gone. And then there's also other things like um, a Google employee was telling us the other day that one of their struggles is they live in an apartment and their, um, their workstation sits on the desk in their bedroom. And so they're saying like, hey, I can't set up another office and I'm trying to go to bed, but I can see my laptop and my monitor just staring at me. And so we've had to help these employees think about, are there ways you can, you know, draw more intentional ritual around this? Like take the laptop, unplug it, put it in a drawer, drape a blanket or towel over the monitor, put up a sign that says close for business. And these were things we didn't have to think about before and these are just new new habits and skills we have to build do you think there will ever be a full return to google offices or has the pandemic shown that some employees can be really effective working remotely and some might not want to return to those one and a half to two hour each way commutes that are so common in some locations like the headquarters in silicon valley at Google, I think we're still trying to figure out what our future might be, but I can talk more about what I'm seeing broadly across many companies, especially in Silicon Valley. So you can see some some companies have already made the uh, determination, such as Twitter, that everyone's going to be able to work from home and from wherever they want. Um, Facebook has also made the same declaration, but it's been uh, a little less clear on the boundaries of that. And I think they've um, maybe they are trying to build in the option to go one way or the other, depending on what they see. And so if I had to guess based on what I'm hearing from across companies and across my own uh, network of friends who work at, at companies across Silicon Valley, I think companies will probably end up in some sort of hybrid environment where we see so much benefit from allowing people to work from home, especially those with, uh, families with young kids, where they just need more flexibility in order to make their life work optimally. At the same time, I think now that the office was taken away from us, we're seeing that there's a huge benefit to people coming together face to face. And so um, for those who don't have like a really particular work setup, like for example, a lab, or you have special machinery you need to work with on site, I think for the rest of us, we're going to be very intentional about when are we coming together on site and why are we doing that? And I think a lot of it is going to be about building relationships with each other, um, going heads down with the group and collaborating really intensely for a, a shorter sprint or period of time. But I have to wonder if it makes sense for us to all just come together and so that we can sit at desks that are, happen to be next to each other. <laughs> When you think about whether it's Google or other Silicon Valley companies, um, if an increasing percentage of employees um, might continue to work remotely um, or, or part-time remotely, do you think that some of these amazing uh, perks such as fitness, massage, food, et cetera, will hold less influence in the ability to retract and retain employees than they might have pre-pandemic when people were spending most of their time in offices enjoying those perks every day? I think it will vary across the board. So again, for, for some people, I think they're finding the benefits from work from home are just so immense 
that they're really trying to think about, like, how do I set my life up to continue to do this? And so on-site amenities, they're just not, they're not as beneficial to me. On the other hand, um, and this is not specific to Google, uh, I, I follow, say, the fitness industry very closely to see, like, what are the trends? How are different gyms out in society doing? People are determined to get back into those gyms. Like, the people who said, this is, this is the right experience for me, they're coming back and they want back in now. And so I think we're, um, what I really like is that with work from home and with the option of coming on site and having these amenities, I think people are becoming much more intentional about what works for them. So if you want to stay home, if you want to do our programs digitally, or if you want to not do our programs and instead take a walk with your family, like people feel more free, I think, to choose what works best for them. And instead, not have to say, "Oh well, I should use that gym because it's right there on site, and it was uh, it was offered to me." And then for those people who that was the right solution, um, absence makes the heart grow fonder. <laughs> so I think they're they're realizing like, "Oh, that was amazing. That's awesome. When I can get back to that, I you know I'm all in." When Google employees eventually do return to the office, um, what might health and performance look like? I can't, I can't speak to the specifics um, as we, there's so much we don't know, but I, what I do know is that my department, health and performance, we seek to support employees much more holistically. So again, like I mentioned before, so much of our focus has been around physical health because that's, that's been our heritage. It's fitness and massage. What we know is that if we really seek to help employees be at their best, both in work and in life, uh, we need so much more emphasis on mental health and social health. Now, if I start to look into mental health, I can, I can slice and dice this a few ways. Um, one would be, how do I help you build skills to manage your stress? And that's where we're investing really, really heavily in helping our employees build uh, resilient skills and practice those skills. Another way I could look at it is what are some of the underpinnings of um, why someone might be challenged with their mental health? And so on the one hand, there's ties to physical health. So you and I know very well, if someone's undersleeping, um, that can result in a lot of issues with regards to mental health. On the other hand, there's other areas which maybe are less traditionally explored in the corporate setting, such as uh, social health. Like, are you satisfied with the quantity and quality of the relationships you have in your life? And then um, there's a, a really great book called Life on Purpose by a guy named Vic Strecker, who uh, he was a public health professor at University of Michigan. But due to some tragedies in his own life and how he eventually found a way to move forward, he found that um, what was really important for him was to find meaning and purpose in his life. And so then he started investing a lot of his research in that area. And so if you start to look in that area, either having a strong meaning and purpose or not having one or being disconnected from your meaning and purpose, like can have profound impacts on your mental health and your overall health and well-being. 
in 2014, I think it was, um, which was early on in my time at Google, I took a course that you taught um, called Managing Your Energy. And I don't know if I've ever told you, but that was hands down my favorite course that I took at Google. And one of the things I learned was, you know, unsurprisingly, that walking around the building in mid-afternoon was a much better afternoon break than eating chocolate in the micro kitchen snack area. Are you still teaching that course? Um, we're, we're no longer teaching that course. I think we've, we've evolved and a lot of what we've learned from that course pervades our culture and our programs. Um, I'm so happy to hear that that was like such an impactful course for you. Uh, it, a lot of it informs both my, um, again, my approach to our programs as well as, uh, how I think about my own personal health and performance. Um, but I think what that really started to teach us was, again, like we have to think holistically about people and they offered a certain model to do it, which was, um, you know, four types of energy, which would be uh, physical, mental, uh, emotional and energy of the human spirit. And again, I think that really talks to um, an- another way I might describe it. So uh, a, a book title I sent you was the uh i think it's the the pocketbook to what was it uh <laughs> the pocketbook for interpersonal neurobiology by dan siegel i think i got that title a little wrong but his construct is to think about brain body and mind and so this was for me this was like a little bit of an aha moment where he says like okay if you think about uh, body and brain as like, hey, these are like the biological uh, systems of your body and your brain. And we know that those are interconnected like intimately and inextricably. The construct of mind, he was saying, is like, that's actually, that's not brain. And what it is, is really a construct of how you think about yourself in relation to what's around you in terms of your relationships with people and your relationships with the world. And so this now, when I thought about it that way and said like, oh, that's the way I'm describing my personal experience. Like, yes, the inner workings of my, how, how are my brain and my body working together? But then the construct of my mind, like you suddenly see like, oh, wait a minute. My mental health is inextricably linked with how I think uh, about how I'm in relationship with other people and where I see my place and my value to society. And so I think that really captures the, the direction we're trying to explore because it really respects the entire human being. Prior to Google, I know that you helped design the hardware for Sony's PlayStation 3 by increasing the speed of a, of a simulation platform by a thousand uh, times. Do you think then that, you know, if, if if somebody had told you then that your career would um, w- would would move towards leading eventually you know eventually leading Google's health and performance program would that have surprised you or at that point did you think that you'd be following a similar trajectory to the role that you had uh, working for Sony? Oh yeah, I, I'd be totally shocked if you said this is going to be your future career. <laughs> so I I think um, I'm the youngest of four kids and I kind of just did whatever my to uh, my two older sisters who are brilliant engineers, I just did whatever they did. And so I didn't really think through like, you know, now, now it's, it's weird for me to think about like, how would we programmatize things like meaning and purpose? But at the time, I didn't think about that at all. I just said like, okay, well, my 
brilliant older sisters, they did this. So that that's probably good. Um, and so I found there were amazing intellectual challenges in engineering, but what I found in terms of what's personally meaningful to me is one, I think the ability to help people and two, the ability to see the impact of doing that. And while, um, developing cutting edge technology, you like, there's definitely an opportunity to make the world so much better. I felt removed from the end impact on people around the world. And so it was a long journey to find this current career and go from engineering to that. Um, and it's not something I could have seen as a 24-year-old who is just making it up as I went along. Outside of work, you're a competitive power lifter. Um, tell us about your 2019 World Powerlifting Competition and how you fared. Yeah, so that was... Um, how do I want to describe this? I had my first big win at the 2018 uh, U.S. Nationals. And there I was able to uh, dethrone the current champion because we tied in terms of our powerlifting total. So powerlifting total is the total of your best squat, your best bench, and your best deadlift on competition day. And so um, deadlift is the lift that you do last, and it's my best lift. And so he went first, and I knew what number I had to get to tie him. So that's what we did. And um, I think I had to lift 40 pounds more than I ever had. But luckily, the the training aligned, the stars aligned, the adrenaline was there, and I was able to tie him. But because I was the lighter lifter, uh, the win went to me. So when there's a tie, the tie goes to the lighter lifter. Lighter in, in, in body weight? Oh, yes, lighter okay. in body weight. Okay. And so um, going into nationals now, if you win it, or if you win nationals, you go to worlds. So going into worlds, um, I was pretty excited because I was on this positive trajectory. My lifts were still going up. And then uh, so worlds were in April 2019 and around maybe November 2019, I started to get a pain in one of my hips and I thought it was just soreness. And um, I know now I was doing a certain training lift with with poor form or incorrect form and so it started to just keep degrading and degrading my my strength and so by the time i got to worlds in 2019 my best lift the deadlift was completely gone and so i had lost that 40 pounds and and i couldn't get it back going into worlds knowing that physically i wasn't going to be at my best I had to focus on what was under my control, which was really executing on the process. So I did, I got my training done. Uh, I made sure I executed that with good form. Um, and then in terms of going to and executing the competition, I meticulously mapped out like, hey, what are all the steps I have to do traveling to Sweden, which is where it was at, um, on arrival, just getting prepared once I land, and then day of executing. And um, the, the real monkey wrench was we were flying, taking a 10-hour flight to Copenhagen and then a two-hour train ride over to, to Sweden with my then one-and-a-half-year-old daughter. So I also kind of just sent my expectations of you're going to be traveling um, overseas and then you're going to be in a hotel with a jet lag toddler. So be prepared to have to lift with really poor sleep 
which ended up being the case. And so my expectations were set accordingly, but I had my map of here's the things you got to do. And so on game day, I knew like, here's where I check in. Here's where I warm up. Here's specifically what I'll do when I warm up. And then when I lift, did my lifts, I had my cues on how to do every step of the lift the same way. So when my brain would start saying, oh, no, you're injured, you're not going to be at your best, or you didn't get any sleep last night because you're, uh, we let the toddler come into our bed and then she kicked me in the face all night, <laughs> I, <laughs> I, I, could, I was really tired, but I could just go on autopilot and say, focus on the execution steps. And what I found was just by doing that, um, I almost tied my personal record on squat and I hit a personal record on bench press. And for deadlift, I was able, I was not able to hit my best, but I was able to do what I needed to, to get the bronze medal. Impressive considering, uh, especially considering the circumstances you've just described. Um, yeah, it's amazing. Yeah. A lot of curveballs. <laughs> A lot of curveballs. How long ago did you start powerlifting competitively? Uh, my first competition was in 2016. And I had started powerlifting, I think, in 2014. Uh, it, it just seemed like an interesting sport where I could learn a lot. And the idea of just getting stronger, was it was fun to me. Um, what I always heard from the powerlifting community was, if you really want to get stronger, you need to compete. And I didn't quite understand why, but eventually I heard the message so much that I said, okay, I'll sign up for a local competition. And what I found was having a date forced you to think about where do you want to be on that date? And then doing that forced you to really think through your strategy to get to like whatever you defined as your goal. And so once you had defined that strategy, all other aspects of your life, you know, work, personal life, et cetera, you had to think, okay, how is this all going to fit together in a puzzle? And so you see suddenly like, oh, you, you have like a really high level of clarity around how you want to conduct your life for the next few months. Uh, and for me, I, it, was, it was pretty instant. I'm like, ah, okay, this is why we compete because it just locks, it locks in the training, but it forces you to lock everything else in. Um, and make all the trade-offs that you need in order to both hit your goals, but also live the life that you want to for the next few months. I know you said you, you, you're very transparent about your training and uh, that your Instagram has a lot of details about that. So we'll, we'll be sure to include that in the show notes. But can you, at a very high level, can you share with listeners just sort of a typical week in your life in terms of training? Uh, yes. So I train... At a minimum, I train three days a week, um, sometimes up to five. And each day I'll have, um, one day I'll be practicing one of the competition lifts. And in powerlifting, that's squat, bench, or deadlift. After I do that, um, I'll do what's called an accessory lift, which is a variation on one of the competition lifts. So for squats, you might do your squat with a little bit different form so that it focuses on one of your weak points. Same thing with bench press, same thing with deadlift. Um, total training time it probably adds up to 8 to 10 hours a week. So if, um, if we were not having this early morning interview right now, um, would you be working out uh, this morning? Yes, it would be bench press day. <laughs> and I would be doing a variation of competition bench press right now. 
Oh gosh, I'm I'm interfering with your uh, your training. Um, have you? This is actually a pro, this is a perfect example of what you need to do since um, most of us are not pro athletes and will never be pro athletes. So um, I often have to say like, oh, I have a meeting in the morning. I'm going to bump my training, but I still got to get it done. And so um, you know, doing this interview and getting to reconnect with you that was the priority. And so I'll find another time to do the training, but it will get done. <laughs> have Have you read the Four Hour Body by Tim Ferriss? Uh, I have. Yeah, a very very interesting book, and I really love his approach to self experimentation. I'm actually reading it right now, which is why it's sort of in my mind, and I'm ninety percent through it. And I know everyone says you should treat it like a reference book and pick specific chapters, but I'm doing it front to back just because I want to be sure I get all of it. And one of the things that's been really interesting to me is, uh, you know, thinking about, um, you know, you know, with running long distances, um, the fact that training in putting in long running distances is sort of not a requirement, which was sort of news to me. I mean, I used to run marathons and I remember I would just basically run more and add on more miles. And then a few weeks before the marathon, I would taper. And that was sort of my program. And, you know, obviously extremely naive, but I think that's really interesting to me. And I was just curious, was it surprising to you when you read that in the book, the fact that strength training um, and or uh, also, um, you know, CrossFit can have such a huge role in something like long distance running. Was that a surprise to you? At, at the time of the book, I think it was, it was a surprise that you could do something like that. Like, mm-hmm. especially at the distance of something like a marathon where I just assumed like it was all about building up your running volume. Now um, that uh, I forget how old that book is. 10 years old. 10 years or so. Yeah. 10, 10 years. Yeah. N- now it's, um, it seems like a little bit more common knowledge mm-hmm. where I think cross training is much more common. Um, and then also I think the idea of submaximal training is much more common. So for example, with powerlifting, I only have to be my strongest at for like half a day at one point in time. And so it's all programmed to do that. So for the lifts I lift in competition, um, like for example, I think, uh, my last competition, I squatted, that was last weekend, I squatted 402. In all the months leading up to that, I think I squatted over 400 two times. And generally, I almost never approached that number. Um, with bench press, I, I bench pressed 250. The most I ever benched before that in, tra- in the training cycles leading up to competition, I think it was 240 pounds. So... Um, Again, like you, you, uh, when, when you can do competitions, like you only have to be at your best at a particular time. And so you really think about, um, what do I have to do now in order to be at my best at that particular time? And that doesn't mean do your best performance over and over and over until you get there. Like that's a, a great way to burn out. Super interesting. What do you eat on the morning of a weightlifting competition and the day prior? So this will be very interesting because I have to cut weight for <laughs> my competitions where we do what's called a two-hour weigh-in, which means um, when you go to the competition, you check in, they weigh you, and that's your official weight, and then you have to lift in two hours. That means that if you did any tricks to 
lower your body weight, such as dehydrating yourself, there's like a very big risk trade-off of if you're dehydrated when you lift, you'll, you might possibly be weaker. And so what I do, I actually, I'll, I'll back this up to a week beforehand. Uh, a week beforehand, I start drinking up to two gallons of water a day. And what this does is it makes your body just get used to peeing more. Um, oh, across the week, as I continue to drink, um, I start to reduce my sodium. And then towards the end, I drastically reduce both sodium and carbohydrates. And so what we know is both sodium and carbohydrates cause your body to hold on to more water. So what you've done is now like you've gotten rid of the substances that hold on to water while programming your body to temporarily uh, urinate much more. And so once you stop those, suddenly your weight drops pretty drastically um, over the course of a day. And so for the last competition, uh, I went from 100, just over 135 pounds to 129 pounds. Uh, I had to weigh in at 130 pounds in the course of a day. Now, the big trade-off there is like I'm not eating carbohydrates. Um, I actually overdid it, and I passed out in the, <laughs> on the jetway of the airport going to the competition due to low blood sugar. And so uh, that was a little scary, and I was thinking like, oh, no, what is this going to mean for, for my competition? And so I immediately started eating some candies to just get enough blood sugar back into my, my body so that I could function. And then once we landed, uh, I found I was already at 129 pounds. So I just kept weighing my fluids and I was just eating crackers and, um, I wasn't eating fruits because they're so heavy with fluid. So I just wanted blood sugar and any fluid I wanted. I just wanted water with electrolytes. So a Gatorade or I was taking water and these things called salt stick, uh, pills, which are, uh, electrolyte pills uh, formulated for endurance athletes. So I weighed in and then the moment you weigh in, you immediately start shoveling all the food and liquids you can into your body up and just below the line of nausea. This is not something I recommend for, for general health. This is kind of the unhealthy side of competition of how fat, how far can you push your body uh, and still perform at or close to your best. And so it was eating kind bars. Cheez Its are my binge um, food on competition days because they got a lot of carbs and a lot of salt. Uh, drinking a lot of um, Pedialyte because it has electrolytes in it. Uh, and then just chugging water continuously. At a high level, how's your diet evolved over the last 10 years or so? Yeah, I, I've, I've experimented with a lot of stuff. I've tried paleo. I've tried um, going vegetarian. I've tried going vegan. Um, I've tried low-carb, high-carb. Um, and what I've found works best for me, both in terms of feeling good and maintaining uh, body composition, is one, um, I go by the uh, National Strength and Conditioning Association recommendation of trying to get one uh one gram of protein per pound of body weight and what i found is if i can be in that ballpark it allows me to both recover um in terms of uh muscle breakdown due to training and then build new muscle on top of that what i've found is i operate much better with carbohydrates so i don't do low carb anymore um you can think of my diet it's roughly uh 
I think 30% protein, 40% carbohydrates, and 30 fat. And so for carbohydrates, I'm eating a lot of fruits. I'm eating a lot of whole grains like brown rice. Um, and then any other calories, I, I don't really track my fats. I think I try to hit my protein. And then um, as long as I've done that and I have my caloric limit, I allow myself to have fun with whatever remaining calories I have at the end of the day. And that's usually ice cream or dark chocolate with my wife. And what are your powerlifting goals for the next few years? Is it even possible to set future goals right now uh, in light of so much uncertainty with the pandemic? Uh, it, it totally is. It totally is. So what I would like to do is right now I have the national bench press record for my age and weight class. I would like to get the national squat record. And I'm about 25 pounds under that. But based on my last competition, I think I'm, I'm close. Like I, I hit 402 and that was relatively comfortable. And then lastly, I'd like to get the national deadlift record, except there's this, the last guy who set this, he's just amazing. He uh, deadlifted, I think 562 pounds. And I'm, I just broke 500. So <laughs> I got a ways to go. Um, but I, I go in with the mindset of there is a path there. You just have to find it and put in the work. So I don't know how to get there yet, but I believe there's a path there and I'm going to find it. Before powerlifting, I know you were quite a serious breakdancer. How did you initially get into breakdancing? Um, so it actually started when I was an intern in Northern California for Compaq back when that company existed. And one of the other interns said he wanted to take swing dance lessons and he wanted someone to go with him. And I was not that interested, but I needed something to do. Like, you know, I was bored and single. And so I said, okay, let's do that. And we started researching on the internet. Um, we actually did it on this new search engine called Google. Uh, that was back in 1999. And, um, I didn't find swing dance lessons, but I found this studio in Santa Cruz, California that taught breakdance lessons. And like, I, I grew up in a small town in Illinois. There was nowhere to learn breakdance. And I saw this and I'm, I said, I don't know if I'm ever going to be able to do this again. Like, I don't want to do swing dance. I'm going to go do breakdance. Um, so I was not a good friend and I just kind of abandoned my friend and I signed up for the breakdance lessons. And, um, it was really hard and I was really bad for a really long time, but it was just so much fun. And it, it just felt like an opportunity to learn something that um, I just, I felt like I might, might never have access to again. So I, I went, I went all in. And when you say you went all in, does that mean just getting out there every day and, and breakdancing and practicing your moves as much as possible? Or were there actual cross training efforts included in there as well? Uh, at first, it was I, I was already uh, into lifting weights at the time, and I didn't understand the mechanics and the metabolic demands of breakdance enough yet to start to marry those two things together. Um, that came together probably closer. So at, at the time when I started breakdance, I think I was 21, and I started to marry those things closer together more around when I was maybe 26 or 27 and started to learn much more about exercise science. Um, but what it meant was um, I'd, you know, I'd make all the classes I could. And then in between, finding a good practice space 
was actually pretty challenging. So um, I don't know if I should say this, but we, <laughs> I used to have friends at Stanford and we would break into available dance studios there. Like we just found ways, like there's like a loose door handle. And if you pulled hard enough, you could get into the dance studio. Um, so sorry, Stanford. Um, but thank you. You have very nice facilities. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that at some point while I was working with you at Google, I saw a video of you uh, spinning of your spinning on your head. What is that called officially in breakdancing? Oh, it's it's uh, it's very clear. It's a head spin. Oh, it's exactly yeah. what you think it's called. <laughs> so, how do you avoid having all that weight on your head and neck and not having issues? I know that for me, every single time I've ever done a headstand in yoga, um, I've ended up at the chiropractor. Um, I think you really have to work your way up to it slowly. So I think there's there's probably two things. I think there's building up the muscles and supportive tissue so you can hold that position. Um, but then also it's it's an act of balancing. So if you balance correctly on your head, then the weight is distributed kind of like it's um, your spine is axially loaded, which means like the weight goes straight down your spine. And your spine can actually support a huge amount of weight. Like I've, I've learned this from powerlifting. I, I can put several hundred pounds on my back, which is way more than when I was spinning on my head. And as long as you do it right, like your body can maintain. And so um, I think it was um, a process of being very gradual and building up to it. But then you also had to just keep putting in your practice, in the practice, so your body could learn to maintain that perfect balance. Tell us a bit about the culture of the breakdancing community. Oh, the breakdance community is one of the most amazing and innovative and inspiring communities that um, I've ever had the the honor of being around. And so I think they what they've done is there is this, you know, this art form that originated, you know, in the 70s in the Bronx. And it had this huge explosion in the 80s where it, it got, you know, arguably too watered down. Like it's kind of lost its cultural sense and then it flamed out. When it was flaming out here, it was starting to really take off in other places like Europe in the 90s. And so um, in the 90s, one of the marquee events was this uh, competition called Battle of the Year. And that became like kind of this first, it was big in Europe. And then the Americans started showing up and then uh, people from Asia, Africa. And so it, it was like one of the first big international marquee events that I was aware of. From there, it started to come back in the U.S., but this time, the breakdance community was very protective of their culture. They saw like, hey, we can't just commercialize this. Like, The roots have to stay strong. And so there's this philosophy they talk about called each one teach one. And so if you have the honor of learning not just about the art of breakdance, but the underlying culture of hip hop, it's your responsibility as you go along to teach others that. And so it's really propagated in this really word of mouth type way where like, I, yes, I came in through classes, but that's not the common way generally. Like it's uh, very much um, people bringing in friends, bringing in p potential proteges, and then those friends and proteges taking it to the next level of the next generation. Uh, where this really started to explode, I believe was with the arrival of YouTube, where suddenly like people who didn't have access to that community directly had access to the community via social media and could see like some of these amazing moves that breakdancers did. And no one was telling them that this was a super advanced move. So you just had a 10 year old kid teaching themselves to do 
amazing, like world changing moves in their living room because no one told them that, oh, that's, that's super expert level. You shouldn't do that yet. They just went and did it. And so the level, because no one knows what the limit is and it just propagates through the internet, it just keeps skyrocketing higher and higher and higher with technical difficulty, dance artistry, uh, people knowing the culture inside out. I think the entire world could learn so much from the hip hop and breakdance community uh, in terms of how it's scaled with such authenticity um, while bringing in people from across walks of life and how it has been so incredibly innovative. In addition to having access to YouTube, are there any other factors that you think led to some of your biggest gains in breakdancing? And I know eventually you ended up performing as a breakdance soloist uh, in a piece with the ballet San Jose. It, the, the biggest thing was the exposure to really, really good teachers. So um, one of my heroes in breakdance, you know, when I was learning about the dance was uh, a guy named uh, Ariston Rapoila. He went by the b-boy name Remind. And I had only seen him on videos. I had heard about him on the internet, but he had this really unique style that didn't look like anyone else, but to me just felt more artistic and more musical than anyone I had seen. And so one day I show up to the studio where I was teaching, and for some reason b-boy Remind is just hanging out in the lobby. And so I'm like, oh, hey, like you're b-boy Remind. Um, and, and we started chatting and it turns out he knew the studio owner and for some reason he had moved to the area just for the summer and was looking for a teaching gig. And so like, I happily let him, you know, join me and co-teach my class. Um, and he of course knew about a thousand times more than I did. And he was just this amazing teacher. And so, you know, the things I learned from him were, um, he approached things like a martial art which is now that I've been doing very structured powerlifting for a while, I, I saw that you could take this, um, this dance form, which I saw as being so limitless and with no boundaries. And for him, he was very particular about the boundaries of teaching people the foundation in a really solid way so that you could use that to build on top of it. And you, that's where you'd insert your, your creativity. Like you got to know the rules so you can break the rules. And he knew them inside out. And so he really firmed up my foundation. Um, and then the other thing that he taught me was that the reason he had such a unique style was because he grew up in, I believe, Stockton, California, where there wasn't much breakdance community. So he and his friends just learned off a single VHS tape that they, they watched over and over. But then once they learned all the moves on that tape, they had to draw from the local community where there was like a thriving, uh, house and hip hop dance scene in Stockton. So his moves are actually taken from that um, and then recombined with breakdance. And what it showed me was like, yes, if you get the foundation of how an art form works or whether it's a field or industry, you can now use that as your foundation to bring in stuff from other industries and other fields and create something new. I'd love to shift gears and talk a little about family. I, I know you're a relatively new father. Um, what factors make you successful in juggling your career, your family, and competitive lifting? Like many other parents, I think establishing routines and having especially your child stick to them is super key, especially around sleep. I think that's one. Two, um, I think I'm very good at forgiving myself as a father 
and telling myself that like emotionally your your you know reptilian brain is telling you that you're a horrible parent and everything's going wrong and it's saying that all the time and so i think i've spent the time either reading books or connecting with other parents just to verify oh wait we all feel like that okay good so let's find some other ways to measure if we're successful and so i i really measure success again just like all things like by process of like, hey, am I sticking to the routines? Am I, um, when I'm with her, am I being present? Am I showing up at my, you know, the best I can at that time? Um, am I listening to what we should be doing for this developmental stage? And then if I'm doing all that, uh, at the last thing I say is, uh, you know, from talking to other parents and then from reading these books, everyone feels like they're getting it wrong all the time. So if I tell myself, if I feel like I'm getting this wrong, but I know I'm trying to do all the steps, then pat on the back. Good for you. Keep at it. Because if I tell myself that perfection is, is the uh, goal, not practice, then I'm just not going to be able to make, through, make it through this emotionally. What's your sleep schedule like these days? And is it, has it changed since the pandemic? It has changed a little since the pandemic, mainly because I think the pandemic was pretty unsettling to my daughter because her, her routine changed, like her childcare routine changed. We couldn't take her out to play in the same ways. And so she went through a period where she slept really poorly, which really interrupted our sleep. And so um, we worked with a sleep consultant and eventually where we landed was we, um, we shifted her nighttime sleep and shortened a little bit and shortened her nap. And for any other parents, nap is synonymous with break time for you. So I lost some break time. She started getting up earlier, which made it a little harder. And so now I just had less leeway to work with in terms of time that um, was free for my wife and I. So now, like, it, it's interesting. The I always thought of, like, you must get your um, eight-hour sleep, which equates to your, you know, nine hours in bedtime in order to be optimal, like mathematically, I just can't do that anymore. And so now uh, what I've had to be much more aware of was if, if that's the optimal, like what is the minimum for operating in a place where I'm going to show up as uh, a good dad, a good husband and a, um, a good employee or, or worker and, and be able to hit my training. And so for me, I know that floor is seven hours in bedtime. It's not going to feel great. But just mathematically, that's sometimes where I end up. Um, oh, go ahead. I, I was just going to say, I, I remember um, a, a while back you shared with me that you did a, a, a test once, where you, a sleeping trial, where you did, I think, a 9 p.m. to 5 a.m. schedule during a time, I think, when, you're, when your wife was out of town and you had total control of your schedule. Um, I'm curious, can you share more about just sort of what precipitated that and sort of any aha, any ahas from that trial? Yeah. So that was early in my Google career and I was sleeping pretty poorly. And, but I did remember there was a time where I used to get up at five, 5 AM and I, I felt like my days were so productive. And so she, um, she had gone on leave from her job to just take a sabbatical and was going back to Japan to visit her family. And so I said, you know what? 
um, I know I'm undersleeping and I kind of want to get back to that feeling of when I got up early. So I just said, at, at the time, I thought eight hours in bedtime equaled eight hours sleep. So that's how I came up with nine to five. And um, so I just started trying it. And the first few days were hard. And then eventually I got the routine down. And then after a week, I felt like a super person where I would show up to work uh, at, you know, I'd get up, I'd feel good, show up to work at 6 a.m. Uh, I might hit the onsite gym or I might just start cranking on work. And I just found I was just way more productive. And so that, that became at least my baseline of like, this is how it can feel if you can control enough variables and be on top of your sleep hygiene to get really consistent and get a good amount of sleep. I can't, get, I can't let the interview uh, end without noting your expertise in craft beer, especially IPAs. What are your three top beers of all time? Oh, let's see. So there's going to be some quality mixed in there and some is nostalgia. Um, Pliny the Elder has to make the list uh, just because I think in terms of quality, they raised the bar for everyone in terms of like, this is what's possible with an IPA. Um, And they were one of the first kind of iconic beers where I said, you know what, I'm going to go drive. I'm going to drive up to Santa Rosa, California to get this beer and uh, see if it's worth it. And what that really did was it got me into this culture of, you know, um, trying to seek out and learn about new craft beers. So I think that's one. Um, Let's see. Other top beers. Right now, I'll I'll talk about right now because it's it's pretty dynamic. The, The hazy IPA trend is really big. And so many different breweries have taken a crack at this. Um, I think a lot of the, in terms of the, the who does credit go to, uh, a lot of people mention Hetty Topper out in, I believe, Vermont. Um, the, the brewery that's really impressing me right now is, uh, oh, crap, they're in Santa Cruz. Oh, Humble Sea, where I actually, um, so they, they do a lot of IPAs. And I don't think there's a huge amount of diversity in what they do. But for the style, I think they take some really interesting chances and they're just consistently really good. And they do the most amazing art on their cans. And then the last thing, which um, I'll, I'll say, which probably would raise an eyebrow for some craft beer fans is a Heineken. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, the reason I I have kind of nostalgic feelings around Heineken is that was my dad's. Uh, I'll have one. He'd have one beer a week. Mm. Friday nights he'd have a Heineken, and then uh, you know when I got old enough, not necessarily a drinking age, but old enough, and I'd say like, Dad, can I taste your beer? Um, he'd always let me have a taste of it, and I thought it tasted horrible, and it actually did because he stored it in our hot garage, so. <laughs> I know, know, now know that flavor was we were drinking skunked beer. Uh, skunked means that like heat or light has broken down the beer and now you get skunky flavors. Um, moving forward, now I can always have a Heineken, hopefully a non-skunked one, and um, just kind of feel connected to my dad. Nice. We'll, we'll definitely add those, uh, those beers to the, to the show notes too for anyone who's interested. Um, my, mine at the moment, as of today, my... my it, 
three favorites at the moment are uh, Out of Bend, Oregon, uh, Boneyard, Boneyard's RPM IPA. Although I think oh. it was tastier in its very early years. I think something has happened to it. It's just not as tasty as it initially was, is my gut reaction. Um, you're going to say so, something. Yeah, I, I love Boneyard. I'm, I'm mm. sad to hear that RPM isn't as tasty, but I remember one of my first trips to the Google Seattle office, I had heard about Boneyard RPM. And I found a little craft beer shop and had them pour me a growler and I taped it shut and brought it home in my suitcase. Oh, nice. Nice. Yeah, it was, it was awesome. Yeah, it's, so good. It's, it's really delicious. Um, the other one I'm excited about right now is out of Seattle, Fremont Brewing's Lush IPA. Um, mm. I really like a lot. And then out of Delaware, of course, anything at all from Dogfish Head. Um, I love, and especially mm-hmm. this time of year, the Punkin ale um, is yes. obviously not an IPA, but so tasty and um, only only seasonally available in the fall. So I'm excited to try to find some of that if I can here in Bozeman. Yes, um, all all amazing choices. Have you done any home brewing, uh, Newton? <laughs> uh, no, I actually just gave away my home brewing uh, kit to one of my friends, and so what I what I found was um, when I started home brewing, there wasn't as much good craft beer on the market. And so it was one, it was a fun way to produce some good beer, but then two, you brought your friends together for the process and you just drank while brewing beer. Um, what I found was there's just way more good craft beer on the market. Now I can't spend a whole day, uh, brewing beer and drinking anymore. (laughs) So, uh, I passed it on to the next generation. Maybe I'll, I'll pop into their place while they're brewing the next, tasty batch, but uh, I think my homebrew career is over for now. And Newton, are there any books you'd recommend on any of the topics we've discussed today? I know you've, you've mentioned a couple of them, um, and we'll, we'll be sure to include all of them in the show notes. Um, any, any other additional titles? Uh, yes. So the specific ones from Charles Vogel that might have been mentioned in his podcast are his newest one, Building Brand Communities, I find to be the most practical guide to building communities. And then his original book, Art of Community, talks about the underlying philosophy. So I found those so incredibly impactful. Uh, he comes at it not from just an academic lens, but really someone who's taking the time to study a lot of um, traditions, especially spiritual ones from around the world, to understand what makes uh, communities tick. Um, I mentioned Vic Strecker's Life on Purpose. One additional one which has, I think, made me think a little bit more deeply about how I'm approaching my athletic career. There's a book called Relentless by Tim Grover, who was Michael Jordan's uh, trainer. And he's kind of like the athlete whisperer. Like He worked with Kobe Bryant. He's worked with other athletes who are kind of just on on a different level in terms of intensity. And what that book does is it really explores like the dark side and the selfish side of top performing athletes. And what that forced me to do was to acknowledge like, yes, I think investing really heavily in things that I'm, I'm passionate about, like, like powerlifting or like my career, um, it does make my overall life better. But then there's some trade-offs where I might show up as not as as my best as father because I spent more energy in work or in training or something else. And I have to acknowledge that there's probably some selfish motivations in there and acknowledge that that's part of me, um, not to be suppressed, but to be understood. 
Well, well, thanks for that. We'll, we'll include those in the show notes. Um, my last question today, Newton, is what is one thing you're excited about for 2021? I'll say uh, on the one hand, with everything going on with the pandemic and then the social, political, and economic impacts, I do have a lot of worries for the world. I also have a great deal of hope that um, as we go through this tough time, people are going to come together because we need each other, um, both interpersonally and as communities. And so I know um, there's a lot of messages out there for, for you know, unity. Um, we're going into crisis, and I believe crisis will bring us together. Well, great to hear. And uh, Newton, thank you so much for being with us today. Uh, so great to see you. It's really great to see you. Thanks so much for having me. Um, yeah, and, uh, thanks for the chat. And for all our listeners out there, thanks for tuning in. Uh, please share this episode with your friends and take a minute to leave a review on your favorite podcast platform. Take care, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to the North Star Unplugged podcast. The audio version can be heard on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. The video version can be watched on YouTube on the North Star Unplugged channel. If you like North Star Unplugged, please subscribe and leave a review on one of those channels. Finally, all prior episodes are also on the North Star Sleep School website at northstarsleepschool.com, which offers an e-newsletter you can sign up for.